We'll hear argument now on number 91-1393, A.L. Lockhart versus Bobby Ray Fretwell. Uh, General Bryant. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the petitioner believes the general issue in this case be whether counsel for Mr. Fretwell was ineffective under the Sixth Amendment when he failed to raise the double-counting issue that may have benefited him at the time of the trial which has subsequently been shown by a decision of this court to be without merit. I would like to recite a few of the facts in this case because their order is important. In April of 1985, Fretwell lied in wait, entered the home of the victim, stole his money at gunpoint, and shot the victim in the head and killed him. Fretwell and two companions fled in the victim's pickup truck. Fretwell was tried in August of 1985, and the jury convicted him of capital felony murder. The case was bifurcated into a guilt-innocence phase and a penalty phase. After conviction, the court instructed the jury on two aggravating circumstances. Number one, murder committed for the purpose of avoiding or preventing an arrest, and two, murder committed for pecuniary gain. The jury found only murder for pecuniary gain as an aggravating circumstance and found no mitigating circumstances. Fretwell's counsel failed to object to the submission of pecuniary gain to the jury despite the fact that the Eighth Circuit had handed down Collins versus Lockhart in January of the same year, 1985. Collins held that the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments prohibit the use a pecuniary gain as an aggravating circumstance in capital felony murder trials where, where murder, where robbery murder is the capital offense at issue. Fred will then appeal his uh, conviction to the Arkansas Supreme Court. The issue of double counting was raised, but the court, the Supreme Court, decided, uh, declined to, uh, to uh, decide the issue because it had not been raised at the trial level. Then in April of 87, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court denied Fretwell's application for post-judgment relief. Then in May of that year, 1987, he filed a habeas petition in federal district court claiming ineffective assistance of counsel. Now in January of 1988, shortly after he filed his habeas petition, this court handed down Lowenfield versus Phelps. Lowenfield held that a death sentence does not violate the Eighth Amendment simply because an aggravating circumstance found by the jury duplicated an element of the underlying criminal offense. To pass constitutional muster, a capital sentencing scheme must genuinely narrow the class of persons eligible for the death penalty. General Bryant, the, the question you present in your petition for certiorari seems to me to assume that the Collins case was properly overruled by the Eighth Circuit on the basis of Lowenfield. I don't see that we have here any issue as to whether that overruling was correct or not. Uh, that is correct, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. It was overruled by the uh, uh, by the Perry case, and, well, actually the Lowenfield case uh, prior to the Perry case. But the issue before this court, uh, in the opinion uh, of the state, is uh, whether or not uh, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim under the Sixth Amendment has been met. 
And uh, the state's uh, position is that uh, when Lowenfield was decided, it was based on uh, a decision by this court in Jurek versus Texas, uh, decided in 1976, and therefore was not new law uh, that applied to the federal situation. After Lowenfield was decided, the Eighth Circuit, uh, in the Perry case, Perry versus Lockhart, which overruled Collins, specifically considered the death sentencing scheme in Arkansas and said that it uh, was not indistinguishable from that in the Lowenfield decision, uh, which uh, talked about uh, the death penalty uh, sentencing scheme in the state of Louisiana. But after that, the federal district court in, in Little Rock issued a decision and rejected all claims that Fretwell had made in his habeas petition, uh, except to the extent that the court found that there was ineffective assistance of counsel because the pecuniary gain as an aggravating circumstance had not been objected to at the trial court level. And then the district court directed that Mr. Fretwell either be resentenced or his uh, uh, conviction reduced to life without parole. And then in September of 1991, the Eighth Circuit affirmed the district court's decision with one exception. Uh, they directed that Mr. Fretwell's sentence be reduced to life without parole. So just, just to follow up on the question by the Chief Justice, is, is, it, is it open to the respondent to argue that uh, the Eighth Circuit case, Collins, uh, improperly was improperly overruled. But it was right all the time. Uh, it's our position uh, that 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 issue is before this court, and uh, it is before the court. The the issue is before the court. The Collins decision, uh, simply because that was the basis for Fred Will's claim, it's a position of the state uh, that Collins was bad law at the time. And even if you do not accept that theory, under the Lowenfield decision, it, uh, it was overruled. And under our concept of the prejudice prong of the Strickland test, uh, you, uh, the reviewing court must consider uh, whether or not uh, the prejudice occurred at the time of the reviewing, the reviewing court makes its decision, and not at the time uh, the alleged errors of counsel were made. Do you think that position is entirely consistent with Teague, that you, that you generally look at the law at the time of trial, the legal rules? Uh, it's, it's our position that uh, if you look at the performance prong of the Strickland uh, uh, test, that you look at the alleged errors at the time they were made. Uh, if you look at the prejudice prong of the Strickland test, it's our position uh, that the reviewing court should look at it at the time the review is made. Would it be the same, you get the same view if instead of being an overruling, there'd been a statutory change, say that an, an objection might have been proper at the time of trial, and then by the time it gets to review in habeas corpus, the legislature changes some rule and you no longer could make that objection? Would the ineffective assences of counsel in failing to make the objection also be judged in your view by uh, time after the legislation? Uh, quite frankly, we, I have not considered that question, but I, I think that uh, there would be, uh, you could argue uh, more forcefully for the ineffective assistance of counsel claim in that instance, because the, uh, 
the legislative act would occur after the fact. Well, your position is basically that the defendant shouldn't have a windfall. Is that, that, that is correct. That is correct. Uh, a ruling that he would not ultimately have been entitled to. And if uh, that, that is the reason why that uh, uh, we think the, uh, the Eighth Circuit should be overruled, uh, because uh, the Eighth Circuit's decision uh, really stops uh, when they consider the prejudice prong of the Strickland uh, test. They stop at the time the alleged counsel's errors were made. And we think that is incorrect. We think the prejudice prong should be considered at the time of the reviewing court uh, decision. In addition to that, the, uh, the uh, Eighth Circuit uh, Court uh, used as a basis for its decision uh, the supremacy clause. In this particular case, the Eighth Circuit, in uh, the Fretwell decision, held that the trial court should have followed Collins because Collins had been decided by the Eighth Circuit in January before the trial occurred in August. Using the supremacy clause as a basis, uh, the Eighth Circuit directed that the Arkansas court should have followed Collins. It's our position that uh, the supremacy clause does not apply in this case, and in fact, uh, uh, the great weight of authority is uh, that the uh, state courts are not bound to follow decisions of lower federal courts. They're co-equal parts of the judicial system, and, uh, and so the Arkansas court was not bound to follow Collins. And in fact, had the issue come up, and the, the attorney for Fretwell had made an objection to the use of pecuniary gain as an aggravating circumstance, uh, we think that uh, the better rule for the court to have followed, uh, the court would have been bound to have followed, to have followed the Jurek versus Texas decision, which was already on the books. And so for that reason, we think uh, that the decision by the Eighth Circuit uh, is, uh, quite frankly, incorrect in its uh, applications. That is just as though prior to... Uh uh, prior to uh, uh, Collins, uh, the Arkansas Supreme Court had said double counting is all right and, and refused to change its rule in the light of Collins. I don't know. That's, you, you, say that, you say that Arkansas, and, and, until it's overruled by this court, can have its own view of the Constitution. Uh, as compared to a decision by the Eighth Circuit. Yes. Uh, but the Jurek versus Texas decision had been decided by this court in 76. And uh, quite frankly, the Arkansas trial court, in our opinion, would have been bound to follow Jurek versus Texas mm -hmm. uh, because Collins was bad law at the time. And I think that was pointed out by the, the dissent in the, uh, in the federal case. And of course, Perry uh, specifically overruled the Collins decision. Uh, after the fact. Well, you know, we, we aren't interested just in deciding the, the facts of this, uh, you know, whether this case should be reversed or affirmed. I think we're interested in getting at the question of whether assuming that Collins was the, you know, uh, was an Eighth Circuit decision that stood for a while and then was oh, later overruled in, in Perry, you know, what should the, be the effect of that on uh, the respondent's habeas corpus rights? Or we, assistance of counsel, right? Uh, 
uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist, we uh, feel that the habeas claim is not meritorious, and it should be decided against uh, Mr. Fretwell, simply because he is not alleging any constitutional right uh, that has been violated against him. The aggravating circumstance uh, that was submitted to the jury was bad law at the time. But couldn't I interrupt? His, the constitutional violation, he claims, is ineffective assistance of counsel, isn't that, that right? That is correct. And I thought it was agreed by everyone that counsel was, in fact, ineffective. But your claim is there was no prejudice from the ineffective. Uh, the prejudice prong has not been met. Right, but you do agree that it was ineffective to fail to make an objection that was indicated by a recently decided case. Uh, yes, and we did not challenge that at the Eighth Circuit, nor have and, we And then on the prejudice point, if one assumes that even though the trial judge might have had the power to not follow it, but if one assumes as a matter of probabilities that the trial judge would have sustained the objection because there's a recent uh, Eighth Circuit case out there that uh, was directly in point, that that would have meant he would have not gotten the death penalty. That is correct. And that's not, you don't think that's sufficient to show prejudice? Well, the, the real issue in this particular case is the definition and the parameters of the prejudice prong of the Strickland uh, case. The Eighth Circuit. And you don't think the difference between life and death is prejudice? Well, I, I think the issue is really the, the, whether or not uh, the uh, defendant was prejudiced because he is raising an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. And what the Eighth Circuit has done is uh, focus its inquiry on whether or not there would have been a reasonable probability that the result would have been different. And it's our position that the Strickland, Nix, and Kimmelman cases all require, uh, in in, in analyzing that aspect of prejudice prejudice prong, to not only look at whether or not the result may have been different, but look at whether the uh, counsel's errors were so serious as to, as to impair the adversarial process at, to where the defendant would not receive a fair trial and a just result. And that is the real focus of this inquiry. And when uh, that is the test, Fretwell uh, does not meet uh, the, uh, or does not meet constitutional muster on proving his ineffective assistance of counsel claim. With that, uh, the uh, <coughs> petitioner will uh, reserve time, Mr. Chief. Well, could I just ask you, why do you, I don't quite understand why you concede there was ineffective uh, uh, assistance of counsel, uh, because uh, uh, the Arkansas law wasn't necessarily what the, what the uh, uh, the Arkansas view of the Constitution was, was not necessarily the same as or controlled by what the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit said. Maybe I misspoke to a certain extent when I said we completely uh, agreed that counsel was ineffective. We have taken a position of not challenging that, and we did not challenge that before the uh, Eighth Circuit. And we have. So as the case comes to us, you're willing to have it judged on the ground that the counsel was ineffective when he failed to object. Well, uh, is, that, is that right? It's either one way or yes, another. Yes, that, that is correct. If, but uh, to explain, uh, the, uh, 
the issue that we're uh, raising in this case is the prejudice prong, and according to the Kimmelman case, that can be considered first uh, before the performance prong of the, uh, of the Strickland test. Very well, General Bryant. Uh, Ms. Wax. Uh, before I begin, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I would like to just address the question of whether it's open to respondent to argue that Lowenfield does not apply to the Arkansas death penalty statute uh, and that Lowenfield didn't overrule Collins. We do not believe that it is, uh, that the Court should consider that issue as a possible ground for affirmance because the premise of the question presented in the petition was that Lowenfield did overrule Collins and respondent did not dispute that in his uh, opposition to the petition. Um, however, I want to be clear on your answers. Suppose we think that Collins was correct. Yes. What should is, is it open to us to say that? Well, I, I think the court, in its discretion, could, based on this court's recent uh, pronouncements on whether it should delve into the merits of a predicate that is not questioned by respondent in its opposition. For example, in Eastman Kodak v. Technical Imaging just last term, we think that it would not comport with this court's recent practice to do that. Um, we don't understand the court as being absolutely barred from doing it. We just think that as a matter of a prudential rule that it would not uh, be the proper course in this case. Waxman, just fresh, refresh my recollection. This is an indigent opponent. Did, did they have? Did he have counsel in opposition to the cert petition? Um, I think so, Your Honor. Would uh, that make a difference to you as far as waiving uh, this yes, argument? He did have counsel, did, Your yeah. Honor. The government's view in this case is that respondents' counsel was not ineffective, and he is not entitled to habeas relief because his counsel failed to make an objection to his sentencing that this court's subsequent cases showed to be without merit. There are two reasons for this. First, respondents' counsel was not ineffective because respondents suffered no legally cognizable prejudice from his counsel's conduct of the penalty phase of his trial. That is because the procedures employed at the penalty phase of his trial were perfectly valid under the Eighth Amendment. Thus, well, doesn't, uh, doesn't that, if you divide the issue into whether counsel was ineffective and whether there's prejudice under, under Strickland, that, what you're talking about really goes to the prejudice part, doesn't it? I think the way to look at it is, was counsel's conduct deficient? Ineffectiveness is the final inquiry. So, right. And so you, you, you're willing to agree that counsel's performance was deficient, as you put it? We did not argue that his counsel, that his okay. conduct was not deficient because the state did not press that issue below. Although we think it's debatable and we also would disagree with the district court's test that it applied to, to find counsel's conduct deficient, we don't think the test should be that counsel needs to be aware of every single death penalty case. However, we're, we're not before this court to contest deficiency. Our argument rests on a view of legally cognizable prejudice under the Sixth Amendment. And our view is that counsel's conduct did not deprive respondent of 
his right to effective assistance because it did not deprive him of a fair sentencing or of a constitutional right designed to procure a fair sentencing, which is this Court's test in Strickland v. Washington. The second reason that respondents' claim must fail... You don't, you don't really have a right to effective assistance of counsel, do you? You have a right not to be convicted. You, 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 have, a right, uh, you have a right not to be convicted because of the ineffectiveness of counsel. That's right. That's implicit. And you're saying that it was not the ineffectiveness of counsel that was the cause of the conviction here, but the law. You, you don't have a simple right not to have your counsel make an error, not to have your counsel fall below a professional level of competence. You don't have a right, you know, to, to that. You have a right to a fair, sen- a fair sentencing or trial, or one whose outcome is reliable. And the Sixth Amendment right to counsel is designed to advance, procure, obtain that result. Correct. Um, The second reason that respondents' claim fails is that the habeas corpus statute itself, 28 U.S.C. 2254A, provides that a person is entitled to habeas relief only if he shows that he is in custody in violation of the Constitution or of the laws of the United States. Respondent could not make that showing because as of the time that the court granted habeas relief, there was no constitutional defect in the procedures used to sentence him. Now, with regard to Respondent's Sixth Amendment claim, he claims that he should receive relief because his attorney failed to make an objection based on the Eighth Circuit's ruling in Collins v. Lockhart, which bars the submission of a redundant aggravating circumstance at the penalty phase of a trial for a capital offense. Now, under a straightforward reading of Strickland, respondent could not possibly have an ineffective assistance claim. To sow prejudice under Strickland, it is necessary first to demonstrate that there was a reasonable possibility that the outcome of the case might have been different. But that's not enough. You also have to show that counsel's error was so serious that it deprived the person of a fair trial or a reliable outcome. Now, under Lowenfield v. Phelps, there was nothing wrong with what happened at the penalty phase of respondent's trial, and therefore he cannot meet that condition. So he is not entitled to habeas relief. The second argument that... So so, uh, we we could assume that the attorney, say, could be sued in a professional negligence action, uh, because if we assume the outcome would have been different and that he did not know about the Collins case and he should have known about the Collins case, but there's still no constitutional violation because the trial was fair. Exactly, and that's because constitutional... It's a little odd to say you can sue for professional negligence even though it's a fair trial, but I, I understand the difference. Well, that's because there's only one constitution, and either Collins was right or it wasn't right. And a basic tenet of our constitutional jurisprudence uh, is that we apply the present view of the law. The present view of the law is presumed to be the correct view of the law, and that is the view that controls whether or not an individual has been deprived of their constitutional rights. Well, you say that he's not entitled to relief because the trial was fair. That suggests that perhaps there might have been a constitutional violation, but nonetheless it was fair. It's accurate to say here, isn't it, that, that your position is he is not entitled to relief because no constitutional violation. The, there was no constitutional violation which occurred at his trial. Well, his contention is that his trial is unfair because there was a 
constitutional violation. And he, he's saying that there was an Eighth Amendment defect in his trial because Collins addresses the Eighth Amendment, you know, yeah, that's, liability that's of why the case is here. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we are saying that there was no constitutional defect. His Sixth Amendment claim happens to be predicated on the further claim that there was constitutional prejudice. Not all Sixth Amendment claims are like that, but this one happens to be. Now, the second independent... So I'm still not sure what, what's, what the standard is. Yes. Whether or not counsel uh, committed a constitutional uh, error... No, it, the standard is broader than that because it encompasses, for, you're saying for a Sixth Amendment violation, what's the standard? The standard is, for prejudice, is really a two-part standard. The first is a purely mechanical inquiry. Is there a reasonable possibility the outcome would have been different? Um, that's just the first part. The second part is, would that error, the different outcome, is it one that detracts from the fairness of the trial or from the reliability of the outcome, or deprives the individual of a right that goes to the reliability of the outcome or the fairness of the trial. Now, obviously, if counsel's error resulted in an Eighth Amendment violation, that would make the result less reliable because it means that the jury would have imposed the death penalty in a manner that does not comport with the Eighth Amendment. And that's precisely what we're saying didn't happen here. Whatever, everything that happened at the penalty phase comported with the Eighth Amendment as this court stated the requirements of the Eighth Amendment under Lowenfield v. Phelps. Now, the Supposing Lowenfield had never been decided, would it have been open to the state to argue in habeas that the Collins case was wrong and therefore there was no prejudice? Um, I think that it might have been, yes, it might have been open to them to do that because they could have sought, in effect, the Lowenfield ruling. And even though um, the trial judge would have written, <laughs> oh, okay, I understand. I mean, the court could have rejected the habeas claim on the basis of the Lowenfield uh, insight, so to speak. Um, now, the district court was also wrong to grant the habeas relief for the independent reason that the habeas statute itself does not authorize that relief. Section 2254A requires a defendant as a threshold matter to show what he is being held in violation of the Constitution or the laws of the United States. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Wax. Uh, Mr. Medlock, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As noted by your initial question to the Attorney General, Mr. Chief Justice, there's been a misstatement of the issue in this case. His formulation, as well as that posited by Ms. Waxman, require the court to factor into the analysis of Fretwell's claim of ineffective assistance, subsequent developments in the law. He suggests the court must take into account changes in the law which took place some four years after Fretwell's trial in determining whether or not he was deprived of his Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Excuse me, those really weren't changes in the law. I mean, they, 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 they were just, uh, the, law, the law was always that. It just so happened that the Eighth Circuit had gotten it wrong four years earlier, and we didn't discover that they were wrong, or it was not publicly announced that they were wrong until four years later. That's different from saying the law changed. The law did change, uh, Justice Scalia, in that um, the, the rule regarding pecuniary gain was changed. And the, our point 
here is that even though we need not reach the question of whether the subsequent law has anything to do with this, mm. this Strickland analysis, it does in a sense that there is before us the possibility of deciding whether or not Lowenfield applies to Arkansas. Our position is no, Lowenfield does not apply to Arkansas. Therefore, the change which occurred was wrong. The law Collins was always good and is. Is it, is it open to us to consider that Collins was wrong for this reason, um, that it would be possible under the Arkansas statute to commit burglary uh, without doing so for pecuniary gain, uh, and that therefore uh, the kind of the basic assumption of, of Collins was wrong in the first place? Is, is, that, um, is, is that analysis open to us? No, sir, if, if I understand the question, that pecuniary gain within the context of our burglary statute is not the same thing that we're considering in our capital punishment statute. Um, well, I thought, the, I thought the argument was that pecuniary gain was necessarily uh, the motive for burglary, and therefore uh, the commission of a crime for pecuniary gain did not narrow uh, the class of burglars. It's not a, a motive. It's, it's that it is an element of, of the offense of, of robbery. That pecuniary gain is a built-in aggravator in every case of, of capital. I should have said robbery, yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Is, is it so that you're saying uh, it would not be possible for us to analyze the state law to find that there was a class of robbery in which pecuniary gain was not the, the motive? What I'm thinking of is, and this may be a misstatement of state law, but... What if someone had committed uh, or had attempted to commit theft uh, and on learning that, that he was about to be discovered, fled and used force in fleeing? As I understand the way your law is written, the, bur the, the robbery would have occurred at the point at which he used force to escape. And his motive at that point was not pecuniary gain, but, but to escape. Uh, would, it, is, would it be open to us, assuming that's correct, to say that on that view of the law, uh, the, the pecuniary gain um, uh, aggravator actually did narrow uh, the, the class of, of robbers. That it actually did? Yeah. Uh, under certain circumstances, it, it in fact can narrow, I think. But in our well, if, case... If under certain circumstances it can narrow, then Collins was wrong, wasn't it? Excuse me? Uh, if, if under certain circumstances... Uh, the pecuniary gain aggravator can narrow the class of robbers, then Collins was wrongly decided, wasn't it? No, sir. Under some theoretical possibilities, that might happen. But under uh, the realities of the way this law is applied, applied, what you have in a weighing state such as Arkansas, which we'll get to in a moment, is uh, a skewed process of narrowing. You, with our definition of the effect, Why is it skewed if it narrows? It is skewed by the automatic of a by a built-in aggravator. If in every case there's but I, 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 if I may interrupt you, I thought you told me that there would be some cases in which there would not be necessarily uh, an element of pecuniary gain uh, in a robbery uh, in in a robbery uh, 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 indictment. I'm not sure that I misunderstood you, I guess. I misunderstood you. M Mr. Medlock? Yes. Was the question raised on direct appeal to the Supreme Court of Arkansas in this case as to whether the Arkansas statute was like the Louisiana statute? No, sir. 
I, had, I thought uh, the Attorney General had said it was raised, but that the Supreme Court of Arkansas refused to pass on it. Is, is, am I wrong in that? It was not raised, and, and there was no pronouncement by the Arkansas Supreme Court and, that I'm aware of. As I understand, the Supreme Court of Arkansas has never opined as to whether it is the Arkansas statute is like the Louisiana statute. Is that correct? That's right. We don't have a pronouncement of that. Um, what the petitioner is encouraging us to do in this case is to adopt a new rule. If we limit our analysis, if we focus on the issue that really is before this court, which is a Strickland analysis of Mr. Fretwell's claim of ineffective assistance, uh, we can answer the question. We need not go further and consider these changes in the, in the law. Uh, petitioner asks us to ask the court to adopt a new rule to employ the use of hindsight um, and look back and analyze Mr. Fretwell's claim in light of these subsequent developments in the law. This is, as I said, a new rule. It's in direct contravention of the opinion in Strickland where it stated that every effort should be made to eliminate the distorting effects of hindsight when assessing claims of this type. Mr. Medlock, yes, sir. supposing that this case had been tried before a trial judge who was known to have a propensity for granting verdicts of acquittal at the close of the state's case. And uh, the, uh, it was also known that they were frequently unjustified. And the state put in a very good case that any reasonable observer would say, yes, this is surely sufficient to go to the jury. And the defense lawyer fails to make a motion for judgment of acquittal. And can, it, can, the, we, can he come back later and say ineffective assistance of counsel because this particular judge was a real softy for this kind of motion? It's very likely he would have granted it, although it, 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 it wouldn't have been justified. And there's no appeal from that. I think he would have a problem making that argument, once again, under Strickland. Why? Strickland's, Strickland admonishes us against considering uh, idiosyncrasies uh, of, a, of the trier um, Strickland states that we are to um, assess these claims and, and engage in the assumption that the trier of fact is reasonably, conscientiously applying the law and not, not speculate as to these. Uh, so I think he would have problems making that argument under those facts. Um, of course, the state uh, says it isn't, there's no new rule because uh, what the uh, attorney did was uh, consistent with Jurek or re well, Your Honor, it's, it's our position that Jurek simply doesn't apply, and I think something has come up in the questioning that, that addresses this. Um, we need to engage in an assessment of probability here. We need to look back and, and assess things from counsel's perspective at the time and try to figure out what would have happened in the absence of the ineffective assistance. If the trial court had been uh, let's assume counsel for the defendant had made the appropriate objection and had, had uh, uh, made the court aware of the decision in Collins. And then let's assume, as the state would suggest, that the prosecutor uh, objected to that and presented the court with a copy of Jurek. Um, Jurek just, it can readily be seen that Jurek does not apply to Arkansas. Jurek, first of all, is construing Texas law, and not only is it from Texas, but it's significantly different from Arkansas law. Its intent requirement is much higher than Arkansas's. Um, we just think that it's, it's preposterous to assume, 
assessing this problem, uh, this uh, matter from a, a standpoint of what the real probabilities are, that, that the trial court would have looked at Jurek and said, yes, that uh, says that, that Collins is wrong and that, that we can ignore the Eighth Circuit and that we can, here at the trial court level, create a new rule in contravention. And what's the new rule you think is, be, that, is that, that the petitioner is trying to establish? I think that the new rule that I'm first and, and mainly referring to here is one under the prejudice prong of Strickland a rule which permits uh, the use of hindsight, a rule which allows us to assess prejudice in terms of what happened four years after the trial or ten years or however many years. Well, of course, if we think Collins uh, is in error as an original proposition, I don't see what's new about it. What? If we think Collins, as articulated by the Eighth Circuit, initially, is wrong. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. What's new about it? Well, it's, it's our position that it, in fact, was not, Justice O'Connor. It was not wrong at the time. What if we disagree with you? Nevertheless, under Strickland, under the, 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 the admonitions of Strickland, assessment of these claims are to take place in light of uh, the time of the trial, in light of or analyzing counsel's conduct at that time from his perspective. But doesn't, doesn't Strickland, when Strickland says that, isn't Strickland addressing the standard of competence, not the issue of prejudice? Well, I think In other words, we've, we've got to judge the reasonable competence of the counsel under the circumstances at the time. But Strickland doesn't hold, does it, that we have to assess prejudice uh, by assuming uh, uh, the articulated standards of the time? Well, I think that when it speaks to that, it speaks of odd concepts of fairness, that a fair assessment of this claim, a fair assessment of the claim in its totality would require um, that you look at both prongs and that you <laughs> therefore would consider it in that light, that it... it once again, what mainly stands out to me from Strickland is the concept of fairness, the fundamental fairness, a fair assessment of any Sixth Amendment claim requires us to look at what happened at the time of the trial, that things changed later, that the law uh, developed over time through uh, the Lowenfield case and then through the Perry case uh, should not be held to relate back and somehow uh, remove the taint of what happened at that time. He, Mr. Fretwell did suffer ineffective assistance in the terms of deficient performance. I think that's conceded. And it also obviously affected the outcome of his trial. Uh, if an objection had been overruled, addressing the, the uh, assessment of probability once again, if the appropriate objection that we say counsel should have been made pursuant to Collins had been overruled, ultimately Fretwell would have gotten relief anyway because he would have gone, let's say, to the Arkansas Supreme Court and been denied relief, and under post-conviction relief, also denied, but then he would have been in the federal system, and he would have gotten relief prior to Lowenfield. So, clearly, uh, Mr. Fretwell... Well, it might have depended a little bit on the pace of his uh, appeal, uh, 
post-conviction state proceedings and proceedings in, in federal habeas, wouldn't it? Well, it would all depend whether his case got to the Eighth Circuit before or after Lowenfield was decided. Well, the district court level, Mr. Chief Justice, he, and he certainly would have gotten there within four years' time. Yes, but you, <clears throat> just remember that uh, he might have gotten relief in the district court. He may not have gotten it up here. That's right. However... He certainly would have gotten it at the Eighth Circuit at that point as well. I mean, well, with, maybe, and, he, but, he, but the Eighth Circuit wasn't the final word. That's right. I'm just addressing the assessment of probability under these these facts. Um, Mr. Medlock, um, just coming back to Collins again, why why isn't the Arkansas scheme sufficiently narrowing, even if you assume, as Collins does, that it's uh, that it's improper to count the pecuniary gain uh, element. I mean, why isn't there a, isn't there a narrowing of, of all the categories of uh, of people who uh, uh, who kill? In two respects, uh, the statute uh, limits it to those who kill with extreme indifference to the value of human life, which is I assume I think necessary under our case law to impose capital punishment. But then narrows it further. You have to kill with extreme indifference to the value of your life and in the course of one of these seven felonies. Why isn't that enough narrowing? Well, even without the pecuniary gain uh, subpart, why do you need pecuniary gain? Well, you need something in addition. Well, that's something, one of seven felonies. You need something in addition to that. Why? What case of ours says that? There's not sufficient narrowing at that level. If, if you simply define what? somebody as having no culpable mental state. He has a couple of men, extreme indifference to the value of human life. Our and position, he's committing one of seven felonies. Right. Isn't our, that a narrowing? No, sir. It is our position that that is not sufficient narrowing. Why? Well, we'd point out that, that this court in Tyson established a minimal, minimum culpable mens rea of reckless indifference. I think that's essentially the same as uh, extreme indifference to the value of human life. Yes, sir. Okay. You have that. We have that. That's the largest possible group of right. people who can ever get death. Right. From that group, there must be narrowed those who are actually deserving of death. Right. And we have narrowed. We've said only those who have that mental state and are committing one of these seven felonies. That's, that is simply insufficient narrowing under existing precedent. Like what? what? What precedent says it's insufficient? I mean, it's certainly a narrowing. I, I don't know that we have any precedent. Well, we'd also point out that um, what the state of Arkansas says about it, what the Arkansas legislature and decisions of the Arkansas Supreme Court interpreting that language have held, uh, they don't recognize it as sufficiently narrowing. And, oh, well, and they using, must be right, I guess. Huh? And, well, using Stringer's admonition, I think we should uh, it'd be a strange rule of federalism to ignore what the uh, highest court of the state has to say about its own law. Its own law? We're talking about federal constitutional law. And I think what they have to say about that no, is certainly not... Doesn't. I was speaking to what they have to say about our capital felony murder statute, about the definition of the culpable mental state in Arkansas, what our legislature and what our Supreme Court has said regarding that. Um... It's our point that Strickland provides all the guidance that's needed for analysis of Fretwell's claim. It's clear if you apply the standards governing the decision at the time of Fretwell's trial that both the performance and prejudice components have been satisfied. The court should... 
the Eighth Circuit uh, reversed the uh, district court's order uh, for a new sentencing hearing? I argued to them that to resentence him, since the law has changed, would simply gloss over or ignore the deprivation of rights he had sustained, and they agreed that to send him back and run him through the process now that the law is different, now that the law is the converse of what it was. At well, the moment. So, they, so you say the Eighth Circuit was right in uh, applying the law that, was, that, that, that it had announced, namely powers. I'm not familiar with Powell. No, Perry. I mean Perry, sorry. Perry case? Well, they, I think at that point in time, they're not willing to say that they're wrong in Perry. Uh, <laughs> no, so they applied their later decision as a basis for not ordering a new sentencing hearing because there couldn't be any remedy. That's uh, right. Although... Uh, uh, they could have ordered a new sentencing hearing uh, without the use of the of, of the uh, of, of the aggravating circumstance, couldn't they? Yes, sir. And I asked them to do that in the alternative. Uh-huh. But well, so I ask you, why why didn't they why did they choose to just say to impose a life sentence? I think that there, as just Chief Judge Lay stated at that time, at the time of the argument, uh, this situation presented a conundrum. And, it, and what happened to Mr. Fretwell at the time of the trial um, subjected him to prejudice, which couldn't be removed any other way. Because of some later decision? Yes, sir. So the Constitution was always uh, what they said it was in uh, Perry. Well, go ahead, counsel. The respondent also urges the court to reject the petitioner's interpretation of Arkansas's capital punishment statute. I think that issue is before the court. Certainly, it is our position that it should be. Uh, And I think that the uh, petitioner agrees. Arkansas's statute is simply unlike Louisiana's or Texas. It does not perform the narrowing function at the guilt phase. Mr. Millock. Since the Supreme Court of Arkansas has not spoken on the subject, and since the Eighth Circuit regularly deals with Arkansas capital cases, even if this issue were technically open, wouldn't it make more sense for us to defer to the judgment of the Eighth Circuit as to what an impact Lowenfield has on the Arkansas statute? We don't deal regularly with the Arkansas capital statute, and the Supreme Court of Arkansas has never expressed an opinion on it. I wouldn't suggest that this court defer to an erroneous opinion, Your Honor. But, I don't, you know, we're not going to take either your word or your opponent's word as to whether a particular opinion is erroneous. Uh, I think our practice has been in a situation like that. If it's an interpretation of, state, of application of federal constitutional principles to a state uh, sentencing scheme, uh, to the extent that it involves analysis of state law, we tend to take the word of the Court of Appeals, the Federal Court of Appeals, that sees a lot more cases than we do. Well, it's our position, as you said, that under the rule of Lowenfield, the narrowing function must be performed at the sentencing phase in Arkansas. 
through findings of aggravating circumstances. And those circumstances, in order to provide the genuine, meaningful narrowing required under the Eighth Amendment, have to tell the jurors in Arkansas something more about the defendant than they already knew at the close of the guilt phase, something which would serve to distinguish him as somebody deserving of the death penalty. The definition of the offense of capital felony murder in Arkansas is so broad that it brings in defendants who have a variety of mental states, as well as some who manifest no culpable mental state whatsoever. It's difficult to conceive of a broader class. If any mental state is described in Arkansas, and it can be argued that none is, it's contained in the language which states that uh, the crime was committed under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life. This language doesn't say anything about what a defendant's mental state may have been. The Louisiana statute, on the other hand, as well as Texas, describe culpable mental states of specific intent and knowing and intentional, respectively. It should be noted that in Arkansas, the trial court provides no definition of that language. Under the Arkansas model instructions for criminal law, there is no instruction which uh, defines or narrows the statutory language at all. The court should also note that the same statutory language in Arkansas appears in our definition of the offense of first-degree murder, which is a non-capital offense. If, as the petitioner argues, that language is sufficient standing alone um, to warrant the imposition of the death penalty, then his position is inconsistent with that of the state legislature. He's not arguing that that's standing alone. I mean, that is a mental state, extreme indifference to the value of human life. He's arguing that that plus the narrowing factor of the commission of one of seven enumerated felonies. Well, well, why isn't that a narrowing, a considerable narrowing? Absence, absence something further, it doesn't rise above the Tyson threshold is our position, that it's just not sufficiently narrow to warrant the imposition of the death penalty at that stage. Something more must be learned. Anything in Tyson that says so? What, what in Tyson says that? If Tyson specifies reckless indifference, and that's the biggest group, regardless of the accompanying... And we have a mental state element here. Yes, sir. Well, it's our position that the felony murder statute, with that specified mental state, does not rise above the Tyson threshold. It's the same thing. It's the broadest group of potentially uh, punishable by death defendants that can be created. Assume the broadest group that can potentially be created is anyone who kills with extreme indifference to the value of human life. That's, that's the broadest category. Wouldn't, isn't, that, isn't that the totality of the class that can be subjected to, uh, to the death penalty? All who, 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 who kill with extreme indifference to the value of human life. Yes, it could be. However, yeah. there is there's not sufficient additional evidence of intent is our position of in any of those enumerated felonies under our capital felony murder statute to still rise to the level that's sufficiently narrows that constitutionally narrows mr medlock are, in the papers does the are the seven different uh, felonies anywhere in the in the briefs I'm just as is referring to seven felonies, and you're talking about seven felonies. How do I find? I, I suppose I could look at the library, but I, the, joint, the joint appendix, joint, joint appendix, yes, the whole statute. Yeah. Yes. So you're arguing as a respondent uh, here the, that 
uh, we should affirm on this particular ground? Yes. Which particular ground are you referring to, sir? <clears throat> that uh, Collins was, was uh, wrong. Collins was correct. Collins was right. Collins has continuing validity. And Perry was wrong. We're not going that far. I mean, we don't have to go that far. The continuing validity of Collins is not essential to Mr. Fretwell's claim. I know, but you have just, you've been arguing it. Yes, sir. As as another ground. Yes, we do reach that issue. The petitioner has agreed that that's before the court, and and we wish to reach it as well and suggest that the court should uh, look at this and rule that Arkansas is not a Low and field class one uh, state that it's in the second group in low and field of those uh, capital punishment statutes which uh, must narrow through the finding of aggravating circumstances at the penalty phase. Um, any narrowing which occurs in Arkansas occurs in the penalty phase. If you look at the statutory language, it evidences the Arkansas legislature's intent. Narrowing occur here, and as said earlier, there are Supreme Court interpretations of the statute that support the view as well. Um, the legislature made clear that the penalty phase is all important in Arkansas, not superfluous as, as it would be under a, a low and field class one uh, characterization, by setting forth three separate findings which must be made within the penalty phase. Um, a person, first of all, in order to be convicted, uh, must be found to have uh, committed a crime with aggravating circumstances, at least one or more of the specified aggravating circumstances. Second, the jury has to weigh these against any evidence in mitigation. And thirdly, uh, must weigh these and find that they outweigh the mitigation. And thirdly, the jury has to find beyond a reasonable doubt that death is justified in the case. If, if you were right that uh, that the Arkansas capital uh, punishment statute uh, doesn't adequately narrow the uh, those people to those people eligible for the death penalty, uh, you would say then that uh, the whole statute is invalid as a death as a death penalty statute. No, sir. I think it's fine if it's applied correctly. I think that, that the legislature uh, created a situation, as just stated, that if the narrowing function occurs at the guilt phase, as it does uh, regularly, then the statute is okay. As long as the Eighth Amendment uh, standards have been met, as far as narrowing the class of death-eligible persons, then the statute's fine. And the statute provides a mechanism for that at the penalty phase. Mm -hmm. Well, and what do you say is wrong with the statute? It's not that there's something wrong with it. It's that it does not fit into that first group of statutes under Lowenfield, which which narrowly define offenders uh, within the definition of the offense. It's obvious that the legislature did not deem the sentencing phase superfluous in Arkansas. Uh, these findings of aggravating circumstances are all important, and they went further than that and added in the weighing and justification requirements. Um, as pointed out by Justice Kennedy and Stringer v. Black, the difference between a weighing state and a non-weighing state is not one of semantics, but of critical importance. The fact that Arkansas is a weighing state 
gives emphasis to the requirement that aggravating circumstances be defined with precision. And when one duplicates an element of the underlying offense, it simply is illusory and does not have sufficient precision. Stringer states that a vague aggravating circumstance fails to channel the sentencer's discretion. And when used in the weighing process, in a sense, is in a sense worse, where it creates the risk that the jury will treat the defendant as more deserving of the death penalty than he might otherwise be. Uh, was, was right in saying if, 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 the, uh, if the death penalty cannot be imposed, it, it's necessarily life? In this case. I would think you uh, would be consistent with your argument to say you were entitled to a new sentencing hearing where, the, uh, where uh, life was not the necessary uh, penalty. Well, the argument I made to them, if, if I'm understanding you, is, is as stated earlier, either or, uh, something to address the fact that he was deprived and was prejudiced uh, by this deprivation of counsel. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Medlock. Uh, General Bryant, you have four minutes remaining. Regarding a, a point that uh, has been raised, the Arkansas Supreme Court has considered the Lowenfield uh, decision. Uh, as I stated, it was raised in the federal case on appeal to the Supreme Court. The uh, Supreme Court did not uh, uh, decide the issue because uh, it was not raised at trial level. Later in 1988, in the case of O'Rourke versus State, uh, the appellate uh, relying on Collins uh, asserted that he was denied due process, and the Arkansas court, uh, in responding to that claim, uh, basically said that, as was the case with Louisiana's death penalty law, which was considered in Lowenfield, the duplicative nature of Arkansas's statutory aggravating circumstances did not render appellate sentencing infirm, and uh, the Constitution requires no more. So the Arkansas court has considered uh, the Lowenfield issue, the double-counting issue, and in addition to that, the Eighth Circuit in Perry uh, also approved the Arkansas uh, capital sentencing scheme uh, in view of Lowenfield comparing the Arkansas statute with the Louisiana statute as well as the Texas statute under jury. Arkansas does narrow uh, those eligible for the death penalty at the guilt phase of the trial. Uh, reference has been made to Stringer versus Black. Uh, that case is not applicable to our situation because Stringer versus Black involved an aggravating circumstance that was too broad and was not specific enough, and this court said so. We do not have a problem in Fretwell with an aggravating circumstance that is too broad. Quite the contrary. I don't think there's ever been any allegation made that uh, pecuniary gain is too broad. It is specific. Uh, one other point uh, that I would make is that, uh, as Justice Souter pointed out, pecuniary gain in Arkansas is not a necessary element of the criminal offense of robbery. Uh, and is, is the Arkansas Supreme Court ever so held? Yes, uh, that, uh, that has been held by the Arkansas Supreme Court in a number of decisions, which is pointed out in our reply brief. Uh, and so because of that, uh, because it's only a motive, it's not necessary uh, that uh, uh, pecuniary gain be proven. So in that regard, uh, it, uh, it is not a duplicate uh, uh, element of the initial offense. However, uh, in the state's uh, view, that is not uh, 
uh, relevant anyway because we do sufficiently narrow at the guilt phase, uh, and uh, that is all that is required under, under this court's uh, rulings in the past. If there are no questions, then... Uh, Thank you, General Bryan. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.